0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. A December 2022 Vulture article entitled The Year of the Nepo Baby argues that in 2022, the internet uncovered a vast conspiracy. Hollywood is run on an invisible network of family ties and everybody is in on it. The article describes how people are in a rage over nepo or nepotism babies in Hollywood and indeed beyond. The argument is familiar, I think. It isn't good to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth or to be born on third base and think you've hit a triple. I think it is likely for this reason, that for many in America, monarchy is something of a bad word. The American dream tells us that if we work hard enough, we can earn whatever we want. Royalty are, after all, the biggest Nepo babies of all. And yet, monarchy has deep Christian historical precedents behind it. And uniquely amongst the churches of the Reformation, Anglicanism has retained it to this day as intrinsic to our understanding of the church. There is also, I think, a strong theological argument for monarchy as an important symbol of the gospel. Namely, we all have the rich inheritance of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. God has given us the free gift of grace and we are his royal sons and daughters. This evening, as we look to St. Charles, king and martyr, he reminds us that because of what God has done for us in our place and on our behalf, in Jesus Christ and Christ's free gift of grace, mercy, and salvation, we are, each one of us, nepo babies in christ saint charles understood this it drove his theology his piety his faith and his churchmanship and it gave him confidence that his death was not in vain but was a martyrdom now it should be stated from the outset that king charles the martyr is somewhat niche if you are here this evening and you are wondering who this man was I am quite sure you're not alone, and we are glad that you bravely chose to attend this festal mass on the occasion of his martyrdom. Allow me to offer a brief biographical sketch. King Charles I ruled in Britain from 1625 until his martyrdom in 1649. After the restoration of the monarchy, he was canonized as a saint in 1660, and his cult began to grow in popularity from there. His feast day in the liturgical calendar is today the anniversary of his execution. Born in Scotland in 1600, he was the son of James I of England, of King James Bible fame, hence our use of the King James this evening. He ascended to the throne in 1625. In short, Charles emphasized Anglicanism as a reformed, Catholic Church, a prophetic movement of reform within the Church in England, the work of God, not of man, embodying that core Anglican belief that we are Protestant and Catholic. He believed in the reformational doctrine of grace that had been recovered on the continent a century prior, but he also believed that this gospel is best expressed in high church or Catholic practice such as the divine right of kings, the prayer book, the sacraments, the episcopacy, and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, because he thought they expressed the majesty, the incarnational reality, of the God of grace. Believing they symbolized God's grace, well, Charles brought back vestments, candles, and other rituals of worship, as well as restored altars and re-emphasized the use of music, in a way that really hadn't been done in England since the Reformation. He believed that all of this expressed God as a God of grace and love and majesty. In short, Charles believed that what you are encountering tonight in this majestic worship service faithfully points to Christ and to his gospel. A rich theological and literary heritage followed due to the support and the piety King Charles, with many of the very best Anglican writers penning their works during this period, bringing about a golden age for Anglicanism. However, Charles and Parliament were in conflict throughout his reign, as Parliament sought to limit his power, claiming he was trying to rule as an absolute monarch and take away their democratically earned rights. We might say this was driven largely by a Puritan self-made, self-righteous, even, spirit, eventually leading to civil war and Charles' imprisonment, after which he was beheaded in London in 1649. King Charles was offered his life if he would abandon the episcopacy and the prayer book, but he refused, for in his mind this would have taken the Church in England away from being a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church and worse still, it would have been an unfaithful expression of the triune God of grace. After Charles was martyred, the monarchy was abolished, and Oliver Cromwell declared a republic, the Commonwealth of England. King Charles embraced his martyrdom, delighting, we are told, in the fact that the scripture reading in his morning prayers that day were on the crucifixion of Christ, framing his understanding of his death. St. Charles, as a martyr, identified with Christ in his suffering, writing that he would either be a glorious king or a patient martyr. Indeed, we can with certainty say that he was both. And in combining those two qualities so well, he embodied the Christian life as one of great riches and great suffering, a martyred king. Charles knew the gospel, And he reminds us that God is faithful and God is persistent in his love and forgiveness, and that despite our constant rejection of him, ultimately in the crucifying of his son, much like the beheading of Charles, God is faithful and his grace prevails over all our attempts at self-righteousness. And we see this gospel unpacked farther in our scripture lessons for this evening. Our gospel lesson was the parable of the wicked husbandman, a parable that I think we could summarize as telling us about God's relentless offering of the free gift of grace, of his unconditional love in his son, Jesus Christ, despite our constant belief that somehow we can earn it and we know better. The parable is a story about a noble landowner, a king who represents God, He builds a vineyard, which represents Israel. It's time for the harvest, so he keeps sending servants to collect the gains. Each time, the farmers, who at one level represent the Pharisees and the chief priests to whom Jesus is telling this parable, and to whom Israel was entrusted, well, these farmers stayed on the land and they kill each servant. They don't want to give away the gains. They don't want to give away the money. They don't want to give away the fruits that they're getting from the harvest. Even though the landowner owns the vineyard and gives them every good thing they have, the farmers still think they earned it. In other words, we might say the farmers are Nepo babies, but they don't know it. So then the landowner says, I will send my son, representing Jesus Christ. Surely they will listen to him, but they kill him too. This parable shows us what self-righteousness, what the law does in us, and what it eventually leads to, the killing of the Son of God. Jesus is telling the parable to the Pharisees and the chief priests, and the parable is exposing who they are. But the problem with the Pharisees and the chief priests is the problem with each one of us. We think our relationship with God is about righteousness building, standing on our own two feet. We and Charles's beheaders are like the farmers in the parable. We don't want God messing up our business. We've worked really hard, we think, and we've earned our good rewards. And yet God is always going to come in with a message of grace, of forgiveness, and of love. He will do it again and again. He'll never stop. But as humans who love the law, we often think we can earn our salvation reward. We think, no thank you to this grace. We think, I want to get rewarded for my righteousness, for my good works. I want to get merit badges on my proverbial sash. Don't tell me you're giving away sashes with merit badges already on them for free. Then I'm not as important as I like to think that I am. And so in this parable, God exposes who we really are. We are lawbreakers, we are idolaters, and we are so bad that the very thing, the very person that God sends to save us, we reject him and put him up on a cross. Jesus is clearly trying to make the point in this parable that the farmers and indeed Charles' beheaders and indeed our rejection is folly. It makes no sense why we reject God who has given us everything. But if we are trying to build up our treasures in heaven, if we are trying to build up our righteous credibility, the message of free grace is always going to be an offensive message to us. That's why the farmers kill the son of the landowner. That's why Charles is beheaded. That's why Jesus is nailed to a cross. St. Charles's beheaders, Jesus' crucifiers, the Pharisees and the chief priests listening to this parable, they all therefore represent us at our worst as sinners. We are all living in folly, left to our own devices. We would behead Charles, we would crucify Jesus. We would all like the farmers in the parable, kill the messengers and the son of the landowner because we think we know best. We think we've earned our gains. We've all been gifted freely the home plate of salvation, and we think we've hit a home run. The message of the prophets, the good news of Jesus and his gospel, is that even despite our self-righteousness and our belief that somehow we've earned it, we're nonetheless forgiven. So we can repent and we can believe In our rejection, we are forgiven. And so anytime we start to think, I've earned it, I know best, we must remember, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. We must listen to God's voice of condemnation anytime we think we've done it on our own. And we can hear his voice of grace and mercy anytime we are feeling helpless and out of control. This is the message of the parable of the wicked husbandman and the message, ultimately, of the gospel of Christ and of King Charles, the martyr. To conclude, like Christ, Charles was handed over to death for his commitment to the gospel of grace. And like Christ, in his death, he tells us that we are all Nepo babies. We are all royalty. Jesus already hit a grand slam for us. He was born, died, rose, and ascended to heaven in our place and on our behalf. We are therefore, as St. Paul says, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus has done absolutely everything for us. There's nothing left for us to do. God's kingdom is a monarchy in which God is king, and we are all his adopted children, his royal children. And yet our royal inheritance isn't always pleasant. St. Charles got his head cut off. And as St. Peter writes to the persecuted first century Christians in our epistle lesson, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps.
1: And so ultimately, St.
0: Charles reminds us that we all have grace. We don't deserve any of it, but we get all of it. So in this evening, of majestic worship with all the beautiful ritual words and prayers and music commensurate we hope with the commitments of the Satan we are commemorating i would encourage you i would invite you to look to saint charles king and martyr and follow his gaze to our lord jesus christ clothed in his gospel of grace and remember their message You are a Nepo baby. You have the riches of salvation. There's nothing you did to get it. There's nothing you can do to keep it. You've already got it, and you'll have it for eternity. Thanks be to God. Amen.